All right. Well, if you have a Bible, we're in Luke chapter 15 today. Uh, Luke chapter 15. This is the last uh, sermon in a series that we've called Restore. Uh, this is a series that we've done for the last couple of weeks. And today we're going to look at people who have walked away from God. People who at one point were, were tight, at one point were following God. Maybe they were in church, but for whatever reason, they've, they've turned their back. They've walked away. They, they, they've turned around and, 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 and now, whatever reason, they find themselves away from God. And oftentimes, the hardest thing to do is to come back. The hardest thing to do is when you've turned your back on God is to come back to Him. We, we say, well, we don't, know, we don't know how to come back. We don't know where to start. We, we, we feel this, this guilt. We feel this shame. We feel, we feel if we come back, there's all that judgment that's going to be passed on to us because we walked away. But see, the premise of this series is that God is a God who restores. God's desire is to restore every one of us, including those of us who have walked away and have turned our back at some point. So Luke 15 tells a great story of the prodigal son. Jesus is telling this story, and, and, and he's going to tell the story, and, and, and there's a lot of, a, lot of, a lot of meaning behind it. So Luke chapter 15, we're going um, well, gonna, we're gonna to look through uh, verses uh, 11 through the end of the chapter. Before we do that, though, let's, uh, let's go ahead and pray. God, we just thank you so much again for this chance to be here today. And uh, Lord, as we, we listen to that song, Lord, we're a valley of dry bones. God, would you lead us back to you? God, I pray for every one of us in here today, Lord, that you would lead us back to you. That, that whatever capacity, at, at some point we've turned our back, maybe it was even this week, God, I pray that you would lead us back today. That you would speak to us. That you would draw us to yourself. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand your heart. We ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen. So let's look at uh, the first couple of verses in this uh, passage. Starting at verse 11. And, And he said, and Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And the father divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property on reckless living. So what we have here is we have a a father, and he's got two sons. Now, in this culture, what would happen is when the father would pass away, when the father would die, all of his property, everything he owned, all of his wealth would be divided between his children. And in fact, the older son, Deuteronomy says, would get twice as much as everybody else because the older son would assume the, the headship of the family. He would take the dad's position. He was responsible for everyone else. And so when we've got these two sons, the older son would have gotten two-thirds of whatever wealth the dad had when he died, and the younger son would have gotten a third of it. And so the story goes that the younger son tells dad, he says, Dad, you know, I don't really want to wait until you die. I'd rather have what's coming to me now. I don't want to wait. I want it now. This younger son, at best, we would say he is greedy. At worst, we would say that, that, that he was wishing his dad would be dead. 
He said, Dad, I don't really care about the relationship with you. I don't really care about, 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 about my relationship with you. I just want your stuff. I want what's coming to me. Give it to me now. You see, as we look through this story, there's going to be five things that I want to point out, five things that we can learn from. And, and the first one that we'll see is there is a danger in self-sufficiency. This is where things start to go bad. The younger son becomes restless. We don't know why. Maybe, maybe he was tired of following dad's rules. Maybe he feels like he has to work too hard for his dad, like his dad expects too much of him. Maybe he sees other people in the world and he starts looking and, they, and you know, he says, everybody else seemed to have life so much better than me. We look and we always see greener pastors elsewhere, right? Maybe he spent too much time watching MTV, you know, and he's watching the show about cribs and all the houses and all the, the fancy things that you can have in your own house. And then he starts watching Pimp My Ride. And he says, you know, I need to have a, a, a fat car if I'm really going to be happy and satisfied. And then he turns on uh, American Idol and he says, man, this is the life, the money. The, the attention, the popularity, the girls, everything. Man, this is happiness. This is working for dad. This doesn't work for me. I've got all these rules I've got to follow. I've got these expectations put on me. Man, this isn't happiness. And he begins with this restless attitude. He's looking around and he's thinking, you know, the grass is so much greener over there and over there, but not quite where I am right here. So this restless attitude comes to every one of us. Sometimes it comes by a different name, but we all end up having a restless attitude. In marriage, sometimes it's called a seven-year itch. Though that itch itches long before seven years and long after the seven-year mark. Sometimes husbands and women, husbands and wives, they talk about feeling trapped in their marriage. Like, like they're trapped and somehow they're afraid that they're, they're missing out on some experience or some pleasure by staying in the same old marriage. See, the reality is no husband or wife wakes up one day and suddenly realize that they want to separate or they want a divorce. It always starts with a feeling of restlessness. Now, you could take this idea of restlessness, and you could take it all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And we see that restlessness starting in the Garden of Eden. There, in the Garden of Eden, this restlessness was what caused Eve to get tricked, what caused Eve to be duped. Satan comes along in the form of a serpent and comes up to Eve and, and tells Eve, Hey, you know, God is really holding something back from you. By, by, by God telling you and Adam not to eat of that fruit or you will surely die, he, Satan comes up and he says, you know, God's really trying to hold you back. He's trying to prevent you from seeing all that life has to offer. He's putting a restlessness in Eve's heart. Satan's tactic was to say God's trying to hold you back and preventing you from experiencing all that life has to offer. This is restlessness. Looking at what else is out there and thinking, man, I'm missing out. I'm missing out on all that life has to offer because I'm obeying the Father. Because of where I'm at. I want you to see a couple things in this verse, in, the, in these verses. 
The trouble for this younger the son and the trouble for so many of us is when we begin to focus solely on ourselves, when it becomes all about me and mine. Look at the words that Jesus uses to describe the son's attitude. Verse 12 says, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. See, this is a danger of self-sufficiency. When we start becoming completely self-focused, when we become self-sufficient and, and prideful and arrogant, when it becomes all about me and all about my wants and all about my wishes and all about me, 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 we start th- saying things like, like, I'm not happy. I'm not getting what I deserve. I want it my way. See, this is a very slippery slope. This is the danger of self-sufficiency. See, what every one of us needs to realize is life is not about you. It's not. Life is not about you. Your marriage, guess what? Marriage is not all about you. Your marriage is not all about you. Kids, kids in here, the world does not revolve around you. As soon as you learn that, the better life will be. And all the adults said, amen. Okay. I don't care what modern psychologists say about, about you just do whatever it feels right to you and that's okay because that's a big lie. We are not the center of the universe. We are one of seven billion people that God has created, that God has put on the earth. And, and that God uh, puts here, life does not revolve around you. It doesn't revolve around me. But this younger son doesn't get it. He's looking and saying, you know, it's all about me and what I want and what I feel. And so verse 13 says that he takes his wealth and he starts really living it up. Look at what these verses, verses 13 to 16, it says, Not many days later, The younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. You see, this younger son was freed from his dad's rules, was freed from living under the way that his dad said this is the way it's supposed to be. And he had a new philosophy to live by. His new philosophy was no rules. Anything goes. Whatever feels good, I'm just going to do. He sought to indulge his wildest desires. I picture flashy cars, new clothes, partying at all the hot spots, drinking the best liquor, sleeping with the prettiest women. He goes and he lives it up. The best of the world has to offer. You know, sometimes the grass really does seem greener on the other side. For him, the money, the women, the friends, the status. So many times we think, man, if I could just get that. If, if, if I just got the money, or, or the status, or the popularity, or, or this or that, I would be satisfied. 
And all these things begin to make promises to us that if we just live like this, if you just achieve these things, if you just get these things, then life is going to be gravy and you're going to be satisfied and everything will be perfect. But we're going to see that there is a price to doing it our own way. Yeah, that sin, it promises freedom. It sounds good. You know, just be happy and do whatever feels good. Sin promises freedom. But you know what it brings? It brings slavery. You know what I'm talking about. You become a slave to the addiction. You become a slave to other people's opinions. You become a slave to the persona that you have to keep up, that you have everything together, and that you are completely happy and content, and you become a slave to that. Sin promises success, but it really brings failure. I mean, you thought things would be great. You thought, man, I've got these things. Everything should be good. But guess what? Things break. People die. Relationships struggle and health fails. And the freedom and the life that you sought, the freedom that you thought would make you, make you so happy, it doesn't carry you through. It doesn't have the ability to give you hope when things go bad. It doesn't have the ability to give you hope when the going gets tough. When things begin to break down. And eventually, sin promises life, but really what it brings is death. We learned this two weeks ago, that sin always leads to death. It always leads to death. It promises life, but the result is death. So in our text, when the money runs out, all of his friends disappear. The bank repossesses the car, repossesses the house. He no longer has all the stuff, and he's all alone. The text said that a severe severe famine came over the land and the son begins to be in need. So he goes and he gets the only job that he can find and that's feeding pigs in a pig pen. And he's looking around and he's saying, you know, these pigs, these pigs eat better than I do. You know what pigs eat? Well, when I used to work for the mission, you know, one of the things that the mission does is they have the great food pantry and they, they give out uh, thousands of pounds of food every year to people in need of food. But you know what happens to the food that becomes decayed, that becomes moldy, that they can no longer give away to people? There's a couple people who come and they fill up their trucks and they feed it to the pigs. That becomes the slop that they pee, feed to the pigs. And this guy is sitting here and he's saying, you know, these pigs, and they eat better than I am right now. Now we hear this story and we think of the pig pen and we think, gross, that's disgusting. But for the Jewish people that Jesus is telling the story to, pigs were ceremonially unclean. Jesus is painting the picture of this boy had hit rock bottom. This was as low and as shameful as a person could go. And this was a price to this younger son saying, I'm going to live it my way. I'm going to do things my own way. I'm going to live life the way that whatever feels good to me. There is a price to pay for that. The consequences of trying to live independently of the father, of finding his own fulfillment, of making life all about himself. 
the consequences are often completely appalling. What we often do is when we choose to live for ourselves, we create our own hell. We create our own hell. This is what this younger son has done. But what happens next is huge. Verse 17, it says, But he came, when he came to himself, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? It says, When he came to himself. What this literally means is that when he came to his senses. See, sometimes, sometimes we're just dumb. Sometimes we are. And this younger son is just being dumb. And when it says, when he came to his senses, he began to realize, man, this sucks. This isn't what I thought it was. All this kind of life, it promised all these things, but it never delivered. So he's saying, maybe, maybe my dad wasn't so bad overall. He begins to come to his senses. He's looking around and he's saying, you know, my, my dad's hired servants, the people that work for my dad, that he pays them to come and work for him, and they live better than this. They live better than me. I know that I walked out of my dad and I'm no longer worthy to be a son, but you know, maybe, just maybe, I could go and be hired as a servant for my dad. See, this is what I call the starting point to restoration. Restoration, it starts with coming to our senses. Because when we come to our senses, it leads to a change of heart, and it leads to a change of direction. Verses 18 and 19. He says, I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. See, what we see here is after he came to his senses, he takes full responsibility for his actions. When he says, I have sinned, this is a true confession on his part. There's no excuses. There's no excuses for, for why he left and, and what he did what he did. There's no sob story. It's, it's, it's not merely having regret over the consequences of his choices. You see, how many times do we feel uh, regret because we got caught in our sin, but not really feeling regret for the sin that we committed? You know, this might surprise you. Uh, when I was a little younger, I, I got a speeding ticket once. There might have been a couple of those throughout my lifetime. But I got a speeding ticket when I was uh, 17 years old or something. And, uh, and I thought, you know, I can't afford this ticket. I'm going to go to court and kind of plead my case and, and try and get my... my, my my fee lowered, right? And so I go to court, and the judge is there and, and calls. Well, I don't know if you've ever, ever been to traffic court, but he calls everybody up one by one, and you kind of have to tell your story in front of everybody. And so calls this one guy up. I don't know who it was, some, some, some guy. And uh, comes up, and he says, hey, you know, you, what are you here for? And he's like, well, you know, I want to argue against my ticket, you know. I'm really sorry that I was speeding. And the judge says, you're, you're, you're really what? He goes, I'm really sorry that I was speeding. The judge says, well, I don't really think you're sorry you were speeding. I think you were sorry you got caught. Because here, I can look at your record, and you've got two more tickets from you when you got that first one. Was he really sorry for speeding, or was he sorry he got caught? You see, how many times for us, we're not really sorry that we've done something wrong. We're sorry we got caught. I know in my own life, 
Isn't it a lot? Isn't that what we do? We express regret that we got caught in our sin, but not regret for the sin itself. So here's this young man. He takes responsibility and says, man, I've sinned against God. And I've sinned against my father. Godly sorrow is an understanding that your sin is against God. It's the point where we can look past our shame. We can look past our guilt. We can say, you know, I was wrong. I made a mistake. I was wrong. I screwed up. It's my fault. I did this. So he gets this speech prepared in his mind. And he says, I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell my dad, Dad, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Would you hire me as a servant? Can I just be one of the people that works for you? So he gets this speech prepared in his mind. And he starts heading home. Verses 20 and 21 says, And he arose and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. You see, on his way home, somewhere on the road, on the way to his house, his dad sees him and runs out to embrace him and to kiss him. You see, this father has been home waiting. He's been looking for the boy to return. He's been anxiously waiting for this day, and he runs out to meet him. Now, what you have to do is you have to picture this father. You know, here's this middle-aged man. You know what happens in middle-aged men? I'm learning this. They begin to get a little out of shape and a little more round, and running doesn't come as naturally. As well, this man was a wealthy owner of a significant estate with, with many servants at his beck and call. He has a certain dignity to maintain. He has a, a certain uh, uh, way that he's supposed to look in the community. There's, there's a proper way for him to behave. Guys like this, they don't run. They don't go out running. This isn't what you would see. I mean, could you, any of you picture Donald Trump? running out of the apprentice and going for a run and his hair's flopping up, you know? Can you picture it? I don't think any of us are going to see that happening because there's a certain dignity. Guys like that don't do that, right? But here's his dad running with his arms wide open. And he wraps his arms around his son and he squeezes him and this big, tight bear hug and finally, the boy is able to get a word out, and, and he starts his planned his plan speech, and he says, Dad, Dad, here's the deal. I was wrong. I have sinned against God, and I have sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But before he could get the rest of his speech out, before he could get any further, his dad cuts him off. Verses 22 and through 24 says, But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened, the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. And they began to celebrate. You see, the fourth thing we see in the story is we see grace from the father. We would expect judgment. We would expect that the father would give the boy the right hand of fellowship across his face. We would expect a swift kick 
and the pants. We would expect the father to, to lecture the boy about how dumb he was and about how stupid of a choice he made. But no, he stops the son in mid-sentence. And the father tells the servants, hey, go get the best robe. Go and get a ring and put it on his finger and shoes on his feet. See, culturally, the ring, the, the, the shoes, the robe, this was a symbol of acceptance. The symbol, uh, the ring was a symbol of position. The, the robe was a symbol of acceptance and the shoes were a symbol of status. These three things a servant would never be able to wear. The, 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 the father would never allow his servants to wear this kind of, these kinds of things because these were symbols that were reserved for sons. The picture is the father has fully accepted, forgave, and restored his son. The son deserves judgment. He deserves to lose his position. He didn't deserve to be forgiven. But the father's love, the father's love granted him mercy. Mercy means that he didn't get what he deserved. The son deserved, didn't deserve the position as son. But the father's love, the father's forgiveness enabled it. But not only did the father grant him mercy, but the father did much more than that. The father says to the, to the servants, hey, go and get the fattened calf and kill it. Get the barbecue ready. Get the barbecue turned on because it's time to party. It's time to celebrate that this boy has now come home. He, he was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. And he throws a party for his son. See, you want to know the difference between mercy and grace? Mercy gives the son a second chance. Grace throws him a party. For the sake of time, I want to summarize the rest of this chapter. The rest of the chapter, verses 25 to 32, uh, the son, the older son of the story, he, he, he portrays a self-righteous attitude. He, he misses the party for his brother because he's too busy outside complaining and, 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 and complaining about how faithful he's been and how he's done everything the father has asked and how it's unfair that the father chooses to bless the one who does not deserve to be blessed. And what we'll see is the father comes out and he rebukes this self-righteous brother. He says, your brother was as good as dead, but now he's alive. He said, you need to share in this joy instead of passing judgment. You need to come in and celebrate with us that this boy has returned home, that he was dead and now he's alive. He says, no, there should be shared joy instead of judgment towards the father or towards the son. See, one of the hardest things about coming back after we've walked away is the shame, is the guilt, and the fear of judgment from everyone around us. We anticipate that people will point fingers, belittling our choices, mocking us and saying, man, you're an idiot. We anticipate older brothers rubbing in how they are goody two-shoes and, and, and how we're not. But look at the father. He's the one who matters. And he says to his son, he says, you're forgiven. You are restored to my position of, of my son. The father goes out to the older son and says, dude, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. 
Stop thinking so highly of yourself. Your brother has come home. Now come in and share in this joy with us. Come in and party with us and celebrate that your brother was dead and now he's alive. See, there's one thing about the story that I didn't mention in the beginning. It's the story is a parable. This means that this is a story uh, that is meant to teach something very deep uh, underlying the story. See, this story really isn't about a father and his two sons. It's a story about God, the way that he feels about us when we walk away from him. Honestly, many of us have walked in the prodigal son's shoes. And some of you are here now and you are still walking in his shoes. For whatever reasons, we've turned our backs on God. Maybe we're tired of trying to do things God's way. Maybe it was too hard to follow God and to be obedient to him. Maybe, maybe we thought that, that all the things that the world had to offer, they seemed so much better than what God had to offer. Maybe, maybe someone made us mad. Maybe someone hurt us. And because they hurt us, we said, we're not going to do the God thing. We're going to go and pursue everything else and see if I can make myself feel better. For whatever reasons, we, like the prodigal son, we've turned away from God. We've done our own thing. And as we walk down our path doing things our own way, soon we began to feel the price of doing it our own way. It promised freedom, but we only found slavery. It promised success, but what it really brought was failure. We're left hurting we're left searching for answers. We're left looking, but there's no hope. Maybe you were in the pig pen. Maybe you hit rock bottom. Maybe you're here today. Maybe you aren't there. You're on the way there, but you haven't hit rock bottom yet. Maybe today you can decide that rock bottom doesn't sound that great. Maybe today you can say, man, that doesn't sound like something I want to have to experience. But maybe... Today, you decide you don't want to continue down this path of doing things your own way. Maybe today, today is the, the, the starting point to restoration. Maybe today is the day that you call out to God, that you confess that you're wrong, that you confess your sin, and you take that step to go home to a God, to get things right with God. Because our Father, God, He's waiting with arms wide open waiting to embrace us and to forgive us and to shower us in his grace. He doesn't make us beg and grovel for forgiveness. He doesn't make us clean up our lives. No, he says, when you make that step to coming home, I'm going to run out to meet you. I'm going to throw my arms around you and hold you as tight as I can. He's waiting for you with arms wide open. I'm going to close this morning by asking you to watch a video. It's a testimony of a woman here at Restoration Church. It's really a story of how God can restore us after we've chosen to walk away from Him. Hi, my name is Shauna Hubbard. 
I became a Christian as just a broken, once gang-banging, messed up, pregnant teenager. I was at a place where I didn't know what I was doing and now I was going to have this child. And I met Jesus and he became my everything. He became that solid ground that I walked on in and I wanted those promises. I remember just going, wow, this is so much better than anything I've ever had. And um, I also got married as a teenager and so we got involved in our local church. Through that, I began to help lead a ministry called Teen Mops that reached out to teen moms that were like I was. And I loved, I loved that ministry. I had the knowledge. I um, had awesome mentors in my life. Um, but the problem was that inside my own head, I thought that I just needed to be like the mentors, that I needed to be like the other moms at church. So instead of just opening the Bible to see what Jesus wanted me to be, I just kind of talked about being a Christian. Um, all the while at home, my marriage was falling apart, and I ended up divorced. My divorce left me ticked off, mad. I was mad at God. I was mad at I was mad at myself that I didn't hang on, that I um, that I didn't have the faith that I talked about, that I shared with all those young moms, and and I was mad at Jesus. He um, he needed to fix my marriage. That was my thought process. He needed to make it right, and he didn't. So I walked away. When I made that choice to walk away. I wanted to prove to myself and everybody out there that we really could do it by ourselves. And so that just began about a five-year just spiral to the bottom for me and my life. And, and my kids were part of that. And I resorted back to what I knew as a teenager and I turned to physical relationships and anything money could buy to replace Jesus, to make myself and my kids happy. And um, I did that for a few years until I hit bottom. My kids and I almost lost our lives. It still is a crazy dream to think that we could have been gone. I was given a choice that night by my husband to have an abortion or get a divorce, and I chose a divorce. And he decided to take all of our lives. Our phone was always on the kitchen counter. And yet when I rolled over on the floor, it was right next to me by my head, and I was able to call 911. Down the floor in the living room. You know, at that moment, just questioning God and how did I get here? How did I how did I lose all that trust and that faith and, and take my kids through this? After that incident, our lives changed. Things changed and 
Well, I would take the kids to school. I would go to this local bookstore, and I would just sit. I um, would just sit, and I would read, just so I could fill myself back up with those promises. I began going back to church, and I cried through every sermon for months. I just cried, and I wept with every hug from every friend <clears throat> excuse me, who just hugged me and said, I miss you. Oh, I love you. I'm so happy you're home. And because I was experiencing that unconditional love that that back to that teen mops ministry, I wanted every one of those broken, hurting girls to feel. I was experiencing it, and it just broke me. It, it brought me back to the basics with God. At that moment that I could admit and be honest, not only on the inside with myself, but everyone who walked through that with me that felt that hurt, was able to just admit who I had allowed myself to become and that was broken I was mad I don't know if, if I can even explain the level of mad that I was and I was divorced and that brought so much shame and embarrassment you know not once but twice and um I was able to say that out loud. And it was like God just, once that happened, he took all that guilt. He took the shame that was like this pressing, pressing me down. He took it away. My anger dissipated. And it was a sweet moment because at that moment, Satan couldn't use it against me anymore. He couldn't use outside people. He couldn't use my own thoughts against me anymore. What I would want everybody to know is anyone can walk away. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter how long you've been married. Doesn't matter what ministry you lead. Anybody can walk away. But the sweet, exciting truth is absolutely anybody can come back. And, um, God's going to take you with your brokenness, with your anger, with your secrets. And he's going to be whispering the entire time what he was to me. And that is, you are never alone and you are mine, plain and simple just have to listen. Restoration Church, this is what we're about. We believe in a God who restores. This is why we exist. To see Jesus made known in a city and to see lives restored by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I just want to say, Shauna, thank you. 
this is probably a little different. Probably don't do this very often, but how many of you are prodigals? How many of you at some point have turned and walked away from God and said, I'm going to do things my own way and I'm going to suffer? See, this is what we are. See, we, we look at this and we say, this is what God does. God says, hey, I understand you walked away. And God says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to put these hats on. And we're going to grab these noisemakers. And we're going to celebrate. Can we just celebrate what's happened in Shauna's and everyone in here's lives? <laughs> Can we just celebrate? <laughs> this is what it's about. This is why we exist to see lives brought back and restored to God. You know, and I know, I know the danger is you come in, you just say, well, this is church and, you know, people are going to judge me. But, you know, Restoration Church, we're not supposed to be like that. We're not supposed to be like the older brother. We're supposed to have the heart of God. We're supposed to say, let's celebrate. Let's throw a party. That those in Yakima were lost and now they're found. That their lives are being restored. Because that's the God that we serve. That's the God that we follow. That is why we are here. That is why we exist. That is why we set out a year ago to plant this church. It's because there are lives like Shauna's and yours and mine that need to be restored. And when they do, it's not a matter of us coming in and saying, Hey, now that you got you got to get up on our level. No, we need to say, let's celebrate. Let's party. Let, let, us, let us walk alongside you. Let us learn how to follow God together. Let us help you on your path. Because, because every one of us at some point have been where you are. We have been broken. We felt the shame. We felt the guilt. And God, in his love, in his grace, in his mercy, has restored us to that position. Restored us to the way that God really feels about us. We're going to take the next 10 minutes or so, and we're going to respond to God's word this morning through worship. And I'll just say, if you're with us today, and you are a prodigal, you've walked away from God, or maybe you don't know whether or not he is your savior, can I invite you in the next 10 minutes? There'll be a couple of counselors here at the front. Would you come forward? Can we talk with you? Can we pray for you? Can we celebrate with you as God begins to change your life today? And as we head into this response time, can we just celebrate what God has done in the lives of people here and the lives of, 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 of Brian Howard and, and Shauna and, and so many of us? Can we just celebrate that God is a God who restores? Because Restoration Church, that's why we're here, to see lives be Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for this story. God, that even when we turn, and even then when we screw up, and even when we choose to do it our own way, and we turn our back from you, that you are waiting with arms wide open to receive us and to restore us. God, I am so thankful for those in here who have received that grace, who have come back into a relationship with you, who, who have been restored. And God, I pray for more people that they would come to know you as their Savior, that they would turn back to you, and that, God, you would restore them. I pray for those in here today, right now, God, that you would restore them where they are, that they would confess 
their sin. That they would repent and they would say, God, I want to be with you. I want that relationship back. And God, I pray for every one of us in here as we, as we, we look and say, God, who are we as Restoration Church? We are to be celebrating new life. We are to be joining the Father in the feast and saying, let's celebrate that that those in Yakima were lost and now they're found, that they were dead and now they are alive. And God, I pray, Restoration Church, this is what we would be known by, not by us being so religious and following all the rules and being holier than thou, but that we would be a people who, who, who loves people, who walks through hard times, who welcomes them into our mix and says, you know, I love you. I'll walk through this with you because I've been where you are. God, I pray that that's the kind of church that we are, that we would be, that you would see more people restored to you this next year. God, we love you and we praise you and we ask this in your perfect name.